Welcome to Access Utah. Paleontologist Kenneth Carpenter is museum director at Utah State University Eastern Prehistoric Museum, an author or co-author of several books on dinosaurs and Mesozoic life. His main research interests are armored dinosaurs, as well as early Cretaceous dinosaurs from Cedar Mountain Formation in eastern Utah. And he'll join Sherry Quinn in the first half of the program today. Then at about 9.30, our guest is Temple Grandin who's noted for autism and for her groundbreaking work on many of the nation's slaughterhouses, making them more humane. She's professor of animal science at Colorado State University and has authored numerous books and papers on autism and agriculture. In that second half of the program, she'll discuss the latest brain research on autism. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Dr. Kenneth Carpenter, Associate Vice Chancellor at Utah State University Eastern and Director of the Prehistoric Museum in Price, is the guest speaker. He first got interested in paleontology in 1956, when his mother took him to see the film Godzilla. by this huge beast stomping across the screen. Today, I'm sure there have been children that have been influenced by the Jurassic Park movies, and some of them are actually about now coming to age where they're thinking about paleontology as a career. So Hollywood can have an influence on what a child grows up to be. Some people want to grow up to be lawyers, and which become Tyrannosaurus food. Some people want to be doctors. I wanted to be a paleontologist. And it just never outgrew that passion. Films like Godzilla and Jurassic Park pique our curiosity and inspire us to learn about the deep prehistoric past. But they don't always get the facts straight. Carpenter's colleague, Jack Horner, is the scientific advisor for the Jurassic Park film series. He's fairly knowledgeable. We have disagreed on a few things. He admits there are some things in the movies that he's not too happy with, that they kind of played a little loose with the facts, but it's okay. It's not science, it is entertainment. It's just kind of neat to see those big dinosaurs up on the screen in a very lifelike appearance, or at least as lifelike as we understand them to be today. I mean, certainly what we think about Tyrannosaurus rex has changed from the uh, first Jurassic Park and to the subsequent ones, as well as, say, the raptors, for example. Now we would probably put feathers on them because of discoveries of related uh, dinosaurs in China that have been found preserved in lake beds with uh, feather impressions around them. So I think uh, if they ever do another Jurassic Park, we can expect to see some fuzzy-looking dinosaurs. Godzilla continued to inspire Carpenter into his paleontological career. I actually wrote a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek paper doing an analysis of Godzilla from a paleontologist's point of view, as if Godzilla was a real dinosaur and trying to understand its anatomy and whatnot. And I actually did figure out how it's hypothetically possible to breathe fire. Um, we know that a lot of animals create methane, and if it were... or um, if it was to breathe out this methane, we know that there are some insects called the bombardier beetle, which spray out a, um, a two-part spray that combines and 
creates an incredible high burst of heat, which it uses as defense. The temperature can be up to 500 degrees, which is more than enough to ignite methane. So I hypothesized that it, then that Godzilla could, in fact, breathe out a, some methane and then ignite it, just like a bombardier beetle. Who knows? It was kind of fun, tongue-in-cheek. The big plates on the, on the um, back of Godzilla are kind of modeled after Stegosaurus in a way, but there is actually some carnivorous dinosaurs that do seem to have some bone embedded along their back, which one which I argued could be the ancestral form which evolved into the big plates of Godzilla. Um, as to its size, it's interesting in that the original Godzilla back in the 50s portrayed it as being, having really fat legs and was relatively a slow mover. And when you're about 400 feet long, which is kind of what I estimated Godzilla to be from, from um, the movie, then it was anatomically more correct based on what we know about scaling than, say, the Godzilla that came out a few years ago with uh, the mutant iguana that uh, attacks New York City. Godzilla had a big influence in his life and eventually led Carpenter to international recognition. He is well known for his research into early Cretaceous dinosaurs, armored dinosaurs, and dinosaur reproduction. He has published 11 books, including Tyrannosaurus Rex, the Tyrant King, with paleontologist Peter Larson. The short forelimbs of T-Rex have presented a problem for paleontologists. T-Rex is a kind of an interesting animal. At one time it was thought to be extremely rare, and uh, beginning about uh, in the early 1990s, people began to go out and actively look for them, and it turned out that they weren't as rare as was one spot. They're nowhere as common as, say, the plant-eating dinosaurs like Triceratops or Edmontosaurus. But nevertheless, we have found quite a few skeletons, and in fact, um, there's parts of a T-Rex have been found uh, just um, west of Price, about uh, 50 miles. So T-Rex was also a Utah native. Um, the arms have always been problematic. People point out the fact that they're rather short. Well, that's true compared to the size of the animal, but if you compare it to the size of a human arm, it's actually about the same length. And people have assumed that because it's rather proportionally small, then that this was a rather useless appendage, but that's not necessarily so. When we look at the bone structure itself, it's a very heavily um, massive bone. It's very thick-walled. And the muscle scars on it are humongous. It tells us then that it was a very powerful arm. And um, we did some work on, on trying to estimate the size of the T-Rex arm uh, muscles and how strong it could be. And the, the muscles were, I mean, the arm could probably have hold close to half of a ton um, out from the body. So it's, it's a fairly strong arm. Now, why was it small, and why did it only have two big claws on its hand? Well, if the mouth is the killing part of the animal, then if it's grabbing onto a prey with its mouth, it can use its short arms to essentially give it a bear hug, as it were, keeping the prey close to its body while it's biting down trying to kill it. You've got to remember that the prey is going to be struggling and trying to get away. It's not going to just 
be passive and and uh, just let itself be killed. So having that short arm then is going to keep it keep that prey close to the body so the T-Rex could then kill it with its huge banana-shaped teeth. Uh, the teeth are rather interesting in T-Rex also. Uh, most carnivorous dinosaurs have rather sl- long, slender, blade-like teeth. Those of Tyrannosaurus are more like a banana. And in fact, you could call it uh, a giant reptile with a mouthful of killer bananas. <laughs> they're very long, they're very broad, and they're very powerful, and it indicates that it could easily chomp through bone. When I was at, in Colorado at the Denver Museum, I described a specimen we had there of a duckbill dinosaur that had a big chunk taken out of its tail, and it had survived the attack. Uh, there's regrowth of bone around the injury, but the pattern of the injury matched like, just perfectly with the spacing and the shape and size of an adult T-Rex tooth. So we do know then that T-Rex could, in fact, be an active predator, despite the fact that there have been some people have said, well, it's so big and so slow and its arms are so small that it had to have been the scavenger. Well, we got scientific evidence that proves beyond question of doubt that T-Rex could be and did actively hunt. I wrongly guessed that was his favorite dinosaur. My favorite dinosaurs are the big, ugly ones, the ankylosaurs, because nobody loves them. They're very homely-looking, probably with a face that only a mother could love. They're rather crunchy on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside, I suspect, because they've got all that armor on the outside. Whether a carnivore like Tyrannosaurus could get through all that armor is something we don't really know. We'd need a time machine. But I suspect that if... uh, one of the ankylosaurs were to die from natural causes or some other reason that uh, if it could be flipped over on its belly, then it might give a Tyrannosaurus something pleasant to nibble on. Determining the purpose and advantage of armor on ankylosaurus and the related dinosaur, Steglosaurus, is an interesting area of current research, says Carpenter. At one time, it was just thought of as just being for... Um, protection against large predators, but now there's some indications that there may, that some of this armor may have had other uses, such as, at least in the stegosaurs, that the big plates on their back may have served um, species recognition. Uh, certainly, you don't want to mate with the wrong species of stegosaurus because it's got a wrong kind of plate. They wouldn't allow it in this state and probably only allow it in California. But um, I think that Other purposes might have been for controlling body temperature. Uh, Certainly we know from studies done with alligators that uh, they can, in fact, use the armor that's on their back to control body temperature somewhat. I mean, it's not as perfect as, say, the elephant's ears, which are really large. Uh, And an elephant gets too hot, it can flap its ears and cool itself off. We don't think that stegosaurs could flap their armor. Um, but on the other hand, since you've got such a large surface area, it's certainly going to be a place where a lot of excess body heat could be radiated away from, from the body. And they were huge with big and bulky bodies, likely weighing one ton to five tons. And so they were not very active. They were four-legged. They have uh, very small teeth for the size of their heads. Um, they weren't good at chewing. Certainly, if you compare them to a cow, they were far, far less efficient in processing the plant material that they were eating. 
from what we can tell, they were exclusively plant eaters, um, although it had been suggested back in the 1920s that, uh, that there was one form that was thought to maybe have been an anteater, um, using its long ton- tongue to slurp up ants. The problem with that whole idea is that uh, when you're this particular ankylosaur that this model was based on probably weighed close to five tons, and I am very doubtful that a five-ton animal could sustain itself on just a diet of ants. Um, There's nothing about the claws on its feet that would indicate that it had the capacity of ripping apart anthills. So from what we can tell on tooth wear, diet was almost exclusively just, just plants. Dinosaurs got around. Carpenter says they occurred on all continents, including Antarctica and the Pacific Islands. Such as New Zealand, it's got its share of dinosaurs. Japan has some on the uh, north side. Uh, they were very cosmopolitan. They got around. If um, the continents were or islands were even remotely close enough that they could swim from one place to another, I'm sure they did. We do know that... Um, there are some similarities between some of the dinosaurs of Europe and Africa with those in North America uh, in the, during the Jurassic period, which would be, say, about 150 million years ago. So up until that time, the dinosaurs could easily have walked back and forth across. Um, that was before the North Atlantic had split the continents apart. One of the most common groups of dinosaurs found are the duck-billed dinosaurs. They come in all shapes and sizes. They've been found in mostly in the northern hemisphere. There's only a few specimens that have been found in the southern hemisphere, oddly enough. They're extremely common in the United States and Canada, some in Mexico, and they seem to decrease in abundance as you go farther south for some reason. They're moderately common in Europe, and they're fairly abundant in China. In fact, some of the biggest ones... Uh, are known from China, and this is an animal called Shantungasaurus that was uh, probably 50 feet long, which makes it bigger than T. rex. So I sort of doubt that T. rex or its relative at that time would have done much with an adult Shantungasaurus. Juveniles is another matter. They're going to be soft and chewy and don't have any defense. They don't have armor. They don't have horns. It's fair game. In your opinion, in our research, what indicates the fiercest dinosaur, the fiercest predator? Fiercest predator. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I have no idea. In order to know that, we'd have to have a time machine and go back and then do our comparisons then. We'd have to develop some kind of standard as what we consider ferocious. Does it mean that as soon as it sees me, it's going to go chasing after me, chomp me up, or... Does look down, ignore me because it doesn't recognize what I look like as being food? There's all kinds of unknowns here, so it's really not an easy question to answer. I think uh, a lot of kids, though, have their own ideas, and I've seen some arguments on the Internet about who is the biggest and most ferocious dinosaur, and if, if for example, Giganotosaurus from, from uh, Argentina were to confront a T-Rex, who would win? I've seen arguments about that. I've seen arguments about whether Spinosaurus from Jurassic Park fighting T-Rex, who would win. And in the movie, Spinosaurus does, but in real life, who knows? All of the mystery is certainly part of our fascination with them. 
Reproductive behavior is another area of research with many unknowns and a lot of curiosity. Progress in this research is contributing to major strides in our understanding of dinosaur biology. The big question everybody always has is, how did dinosaurs do it? We don't know whether T-Rex had rough sex like lions, where they were biting each other, or whether it was passive, so passive that people are, you know, if David Attenborough went back with the time machine to film dinosaurs or T-Rex mating, whether he would just sit there and say, well, do something already. Uh, We just don't know. Um, There is some indication, at least some scientists have argued that possibly T-Rex had kind of rough sex because there are several specimens that have been identified as females, and I'll come back to how we know the sex here in a second, where there are bite marks all over the face. Um, There's some but whether that's due to rough sex or whether it has to do with uh, territorial squabbles, we, don't, we just don't really know. Now, the big question people have is, well, how do you know what's boy and what's a girl? Well, if it was alive, you could look under its tail. But since they're not, what we have to do is that there are some other ways of telling. I had hypothesized way back in the 1990s that the T-Rex individuals that have a rather heavy bone or kind of heavily uh, built must have been the female. And my line of reasoning was that if these uh, dinosaurs are pulling the calcium to form the shell out of their bones, then the female needed to have a large calcium reserve. Otherwise, what's going to happen? She'll have osteoporosis. And when you're Tyrannosaurus rex with osteoporosis, you're going to die. So what uh, happened about, oh, a decade ago is there was a discovery up in Montana, and there was this uh, woman, Mary Schweitzer, who was analyzing uh, some T-Rex bone under a microscope, and she discovered, of all things, a special type of tissue inside the bone that only appears in birds today, female birds today, when they are laying eggs. This is called medullary bone. And it only happens during the time when they're egg-laying. So here she had this specimen that clearly has this medullary bone. So it was an egg-laying individual, which tells us it's a female. Well, when you look at the rest of the skeleton, sure enough, as I had predicted, it was indeed the robust form. So we do now have a way of... uh, figuring out the sexes of of dinosaurs. There's been some further work, and that type of medullary bone has been found in other dinosaurs, and again, it always appears in the more robust, heavily built individuals. Um, So we're slowly beginning to get a glimpse into the world of dinosaur biology that um, when I was a kid was unheard of, and, you know, people used to write books on dinosaurs back then and say, oh, we'll never know the sex. Well, looks like we now can tell. And then with the discovery of dinosaurs with feathers in China, we're beginning to see some differences as well. And so eventually I think we're going to even be able to determine color patterns and separate boys from girls from, from their feathers and the color patterns. So we're actually living in a really exciting time for dinosaur paleontology. And are you able to determine how many offspring that they have over their lifespan? Or, or yeah, Tyrannos. Well, we do know that dinosaurs laid eggs, and uh, and and we do know that they did it 
in, well, it, some of them seem to have laid their eggs much like uh, turtles and crocodiles where they would f um, form the eggs, hold them in the mother's body, and then lay them all at once because we find essentially eggs um, in piles. And these eggs, for the most part, tend to be round, anywhere from the size of a navel orange up to the size of a small cantaloupe. Other dinosaurs that have more of an avian or bird-like reproductive system appear to have formed eggs in two oviducts and would lay them in pairs. Now, modern birds have reduced one oviduct, so they only have one, they're only laying one egg at a time. And for a bird like the ostrich, it only lays like one egg a day. So laying a full clutch can take up to two to three weeks. As to T. rex eggs, we've not yet found them, but we do have, have found other carnivorous dinosaur eggs, and we know that because we find the embryos inside. And these eggs do have a structure that's more bird-like than crocodile-like. And there have also been a, a specimen found in China in, in these lake beds in which there were two eggs preserved in the abdomen or in the pelvic area, actually. So it looked like it had been a female that was in the process of laying eggs and for whatever reason got out into this lake and drowned, which is kind of cool to know this kind of stuff. Dr. Carpenter will be talking about the science of dinosaurs at tonight's Science Unwrapped Lecture Series at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center at Utah State University. You watch television, you see... BBC is walking with dinosaurs, there's a storyline, although it's kind of a weak storyline because all you ever see the dinosaurs doing is either eating or fighting or eating or fighting, that's about it, or laying eggs. But there's a lot about the world of dinosaurs and about dinosaurs in general that we've come to understand, but kind of the science of it is not presented very well or done at all. And people are rightly skeptical, and so my talk is to kind of give people an idea of how we know what we know about dinosaurs and have them understand that it's not all fiction, that Hollywood might take and fictionalize it, but there is some real science behind it. And my audience is primarily students that are in high school or perhaps freshmen in college who are are struggling with sciences and don't quite see the need for it, even though they kind of like dinosaurs and they want to be a paleontologist. I mean, I will freely admit that when I was a student, I did not understand the relevance of, say, physics. And not until I became a professional and got interested in understanding how T-Rex arms work that I realized that I had to learn physics all over because there's a lot there in biophysics and in biomechanics of in joints and and levers and uh, whatnot that I need, and so I want to try to address to those students that if you really want to do dinosaur paleontology, these are the different sciences, and this is the math that you really should learn, and this is how it is applied. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Stay tuned for science questions up next. You must love your job, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. It's fun. It's amazing that I get paid to do this.
There's a whole new sound to the winter holidays, and it's coming from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. I'm John Schaefer. Join me when the great Brazilian songwriter Ivan Lins and his colleague Renato Braz take the stage with the Winter Consort and Teresa Thomason for the Paul Winter Solstice Celebration from NPR Music. Friday night, 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, accepting holiday orders for chocolate Yule Logs, cranberry tea cakes, and Stalin holiday fruit bread. And by the College of Science at Utah State University. Public outreach information on our Facebook page, Cache Valley Science Kids. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Laughter's the best medicine, and you'll get a healthy dose on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for... Mocktails. We always have a great time, so will you, on Zorba Pastor on Your Health, from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.